Hello and welcome back to EdChoice Chats. I'm your host, Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Religious Liberty and Education series. Today, I'm grateful to be joined by Howard Slug, Founder and General Counsel of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty. He's the co-author of a chapter in the book for which this series is named, and his organization also recently filed an amicus brief in an important case that might be coming before the U.S. Supreme Court concerning religious liberty and education, which will be the subject of today's conversation. Howard, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Before we get into the case, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your organization. You know, there's already a lot of law firms out there working on issues related to religious liberty, such as the Beckett Fund, Alliance Defending Freedom, the Institute for Justice. So what's the value add that the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty brings? Sure. So we were founded in 2017, and we were looking around and noticed that there weren't a lot of organizations dedicated to bringing a Jewish voice specifically and showing Jewish interest specifically in religious liberty cases. We thought that was important for several reasons, one of which was opponents of religious liberty had done a really good job of categorizing religious liberty cases as Christians versus unpopular minorities and categorizing religious liberty as a tool that Christians used to oppress non-Christians, which we thought was a totally ridiculous idea and not at all reflective of religious liberty cases. So we came forward to say, we, you know, we will stand up for religious liberty and show that really religious minorities benefit tremendously. It's great that Christians benefit, don't get me wrong, but we also wanted to point out religious minorities benefit. And there's a long line of cases benefiting Jews, Muslims, Native American religions, the Amish, and so on and so forth. And we wanted to highlight that and stand shoulder to shoulder in a lot of religious liberty disputes saying, don't get confused. Don't let opponents of religious liberty spin this as a, you know, minorities are hurt by religious liberty, but realize that religious minorities are in fact minorities and they're benefited by religious liberty. Also, Jews in particular have a very unique ability to show the importance of religious liberty because we have a lot of forward-facing obligations a lot of rules that affect how we live in public, how we live at work, and things that we do, things that we do on the street. And there's a lot more room to rub up against the law and a lot of areas where religious liberty protects us. Also, we have a lot of obligations, right? In Christianity, a lot of times religious liberty cases come up to say that there's a conflict between the idea of what God wants, the way they look at the world, and the law. For us, we can very concretely say, we have a conflict between religious obligations and the law. And that allows us to frame it somewhat more succinctly. And I think it often allows us to weigh in with examples that are very precise. Well, we're going to get into some of those examples. First, let's address the, the case at hand, which is the Carson v. Macon case out of Maine, which many are saying is really like a follow-up to the landmark Espinoza decision from last summer. So perhaps you could just explain what, what's the Carson case and what makes it so important. Okay, so as you said, it is a follow-up to Espinoza, and this deals with a Maine tuition assistance program, which says that parents who live in a part of Maine that don't have public schools are given tuition assistance by the state, and they can use that money to go to any school they want in Maine or elsewhere, and they'll have tuition paid for by the state. But that program has a provision in it that bans the money going to, quote-unquote, sectarian schools. And this is a case that looks at the constitutionality of excluding sectarian schools from such a program. 
All right, now the, the state argues that this non-sectarian requirement is acceptable according to the U.S. Constitution because in the Espinoza case, you know, there was a question that arose regarding religious status, which the court said it is impermissible to discriminate on the basis of religious status, that that violates the free exercise of the U.S. Constitution. But it left open the question of whether the state can discriminate on the basis of religious use. Kagan, Justice Kagan said, yes, it can. There's a difference between status and use. Justice Gorsuch said that there is actually no distinction between the two. And the chief justice who, who wrote the opinion punted on that question. So that, that seems to be the central question that comes before the court. The state of Maine says, well, there's, there's no problem here because you know, a school can be associated with a particular faith. We have no problem with the religious status of the school, but it just must not, quote, promote the faith or belief system with which it is associated and or present material taught through the lens of that faith. So all they're doing is they're banning a religious use of these funds, but they're not discriminating on the basis of religious status. So I ask you, is there a constitutionally meaningful distinction between religious status and religious use? So I, we have a number of answers to that that we present in our brief, and I can just go through them one at a time. First answer is that the First Amendment does protect you know, religious use. The clause in the First Amendment that we're looking at here protects the free exercise of religion. And we look to the original public meaning of free exercise, in addition to being a religious liberty organization. We are also an original public, public meaning group. You know, Our lawyers are from that school of constitutional interpretation. And we look at an article by Professor Michael McConnell and other sources of history to show that when the First Amendment passed and it used the phrase free exercise, that would have been understood to mean you know, religious activity, religious uses, and not religious status. In fact, the founders rejected a First Amendment that talked about protecting conscience as opposed to free exercise. And we think that in context, in the history, as it was originally publicly understood, the First Amendment did, in fact, protect exercise and not merely conscience. But we also think that, as Justice Gorsuch suggested in Espinoza, that there is no difference between use and status anyway. What they're doing when they say that they're only discriminating against use, the state of Maine, they're really discriminating against certain types of religious groups based on their status. They're really discriminating against religious groups who see faith as permeating every aspect of their lives, such that when they go to a school, it will necessarily you know, violate the use in the way that you described it as being either influencing how the curriculum is taught or the purpose of the school being to promote the faith. And there are certain faiths where that will inherently be part of the way the school is run, and there are certain faiths where it will not. So to the extent that a prohibition on religious use is more harmful to schools who have that holistic view of religion, it is in fact discriminating against them on the basis of status. And so we think that you know, Justice Gorsuch's opinion had it right in Espinoza, and that is what the Supreme Court should affirm here. I mean, you, you point out that a plurality of the court recognized, I think in the, in the Mitchell case, that there is no reason for a state to, quote, reserve special hostility for those who take the religion seriously, who think that the religion should affect the whole of their lives, or who make the mistake of being effective in transmitting their views to children. You know, so in other words, what the state is saying is you can be affiliated with religion, you just can't actually act in a religious way. I think in, in Justice Gorsuch in his concurrence in the Trinity Lutheran case, 
was already attacking this distinction between use and status. He said, look, you know, it's, it's sort of a distinction without a difference. If a man were to lie down on a beach and let the waves wash over him, did he die because of an affirmative action, an act of commission going and lying down on the beach? Or was it an act of omission by just lying there and letting, you know, passively letting the waves overtake him? He said, really, this is a, a distinction without a difference. And in case your listeners don't know, Trinity Lutheran was a case about a tire resurfacing program where the state was going to donate used tires to resurface playgrounds to protect children. And the state had said that religious schools who own playgrounds are not eligible to enter that program to get their playgrounds resurfaced. And the Supreme Court decided that that was unconstitutional because it discriminated against religious schools and the same use versus status question was lingering in the background, and the court punted just like it did in Espinoza and said, we don't have to decide in this case whether use matters because in that case it was Missouri. Missouri is discriminating against all religious schools, no matter what they do in terms of use. So that was really the origin of this question. And Justice Gorsuch, just like he did in Espinoza, said there's no real distinction And to discriminate against people because they do religious things is to discriminate against people because they are religious. And it is, you know, sophistry to claim that you can parse between those two. Right. I mean, he said also, you know, if a Baptist man sits down for dinner and he makes, you know, he says a prayer before uh, he eats his dinner, is this a Baptist man having dinner or is it a man having dinner in a Baptist way? Right. Again, there's, there's really no distinction between the two, practically speaking. So, you know, on, on that note, your brief argues that the First Circuit's status use distinction, right? The First Circuit sided with Maine and said, yes, we do think that there is a distinction between status and use, which is why that your group, along with others, are arguing that the U.S. Supreme Court should grant a, a writ of certiorari to take this case. You argue that if this is allowed to stand, this status use distinction, that for all intents and purposes, it would render Espinoza as dead letter with regard to Orthodox Jewish schools and and many other religious schools. So why is that the case? So Orthodox parents send their children to Orthodox day schools specifically for the reasons that the court says would make it impermissible to get funding from Maine. Every single Orthodox Jewish day school in the country either promotes the faith or teaches some portion of the curriculum through the lens of Judaism. It is an inseparable part of how Orthodox Jews view education and the obligation to educate their children, the biblical obligation to educate their children. And it simply wouldn't be an Orthodox Jewish day school if it didn't do Orthodox Jewish things. People send their children there because they learn, you know, from the Bible, they learn how to do Jewish ceremonies. The schools take off for Jewish holidays. The schools have Jewish prayer in the morning. They communally read from the Bible on Mondays and Thursdays. They say prayers before and after they eat food. The school is just suffused with Judaism. They have, you know, secular education and high quality secular education and also a Jewish component. And they can very easily fulfill the obligation of educating your kids as the state would require in secular subjects and having them be up to the state standards, but they also have a religious component totally infused in the day. And if you're going to say that schools that have religious components infused in the day or promote the faith are not eligible, 
every single Jewish school, Orthodox Jewish day school will not be eligible. And there, the distinction between status and use just totally collapses because they become synonymous. The mere fact that you are an Orthodox Jewish day school as your status means that you do those uses and you will be uneligible for main tuition assistance program. A lot of this actually gets to a question which is not addressed in this case and therefore not in your brief, but of how the public school system, although it claims and I think really does strive to serve all children, actually does not and really frankly cannot. So maybe you could just you know make the case a little stronger even. Why is it that for Orthodox Jews, the public school system, which would love to take them, which would, would embrace them with open arms, actually cannot meet the needs of Orthodox Jewish families. So I think there are a number of reasons, practical reasons and you know, theological reasons. The practical reasons include things like on Jewish holidays, Jews are prohibited from doing constructive labor, things like using electricity or writing for many Orthodox Jews, and it would simply be impossible to go to school those days. And there are you know, 11 or 12 such days a year, and it would simply, you know, set these children back by a lot of days by having to go to a school that has school on those days in which they can't attend, and it's far more convenient to go to a school whose schedule is built around Jewish holidays. Uh, Jews pray three times a day, and Jewish men above the age of 13 have an obligation to hear the Bible read every Monday and Thursday, and such days they would have to go to, you know, prayers before school at an exceptionally early hour to hear Torah reading, to hear you know Bible reading in addition to prayers. And those are sort of practical reasons. And then there are philosophical reasons and theological reasons in that there is an obligation on Jewish parents from the Bible to teach their kids Judaism and to teach their kids comprehensively Judaism. And it's extremely difficult for Orthodox Jewish parents to feel that their children have gotten that sort of education that prepares them to be religious individuals, religious leaders, communal leaders in a Jewish context without going to a school that dedicates serious time and serious effort to teaching that. It is, you know, I went to a Jewish day school. My mornings were secular education. My afternoons were religious education. Some years it was flipped, but it was half a day one, half a day the other. And the school days were significantly longer than public schools. We weren't getting short shrifted on our secular education. We got to school eight o'clock in the morning, didn't get home till six o'clock at night or later. And that was the sort of environment that enabled people like myself to, you know, go on to college, become lawyers, and also, you know, participate in the Jewish world as religious individuals, which is, of course, not to say that it's impossible to do otherwise, but many Jewish parents see this as the best path, the most effective path for preparing their kids to thrive in both worlds. And they think public schools will not be able to provide that same preparation to thrive in both and flourish in both the Jewish religious world and the secular world. So the, the central question in this case hinges on this question of religious status versus religious use, but are there any other issues that, that you think this case might raise that the court would take up? So it's not an issue so much that the court might take up, but I think there's an interesting issue in this case that a lot of people may have you know, misunderstood for a long time. I think in the popular imagination, there's a question as to whether states are allowed to give money to religious schools as to whether that somehow violates the Establishment Clause, which is another clause in the First Amendment relating to religion. And I think because of television, because of movies, and somehow in the popular imagination, 
there's a question as to whether states are allowed to give money to religious schools. And I think this case, which is asking a very different question, shows that that question is a misunderstanding of the law. The Supreme Court decided a long time ago and has been very consistent on the notion that, yes, as long as states are giving money non-discriminatorily to secular and religious schools, and the reason they're giving the money is a secular reason, they want to promote education, and they don't care whether the schools are religious or not, they're definitely allowed to give the money to religious schools. The question in this case, and in similar cases, is are they required to give money to religious schools if they have already said they're going to give money to all private schools? Can they make a distinction that disfavors religious schools? Not must they do so, but are they allowed to do so? And I think just the fact that this case is being discussed can hopefully clear up that misconception in the popular mind that it is well answered and established that states are in fact allowed to give money to religious schools. So now I'll, I'll ask you to make a, a prediction, which attorneys are notoriously loath to do, or, or at least they pretend not to like to do it. And then they usually, I find, actually go ahead and, and make a prediction. Do you think that the court is going to take this case? And if they do, how do you expect that they're going to rule? So I, I do agree that there are certain predictions I am loath to make. I'm loath to predict the outcome of a case after I hear oral argument. Um, and those sorts of predictions or when a case is going to be decided. But in terms of whether they're going to take the case, I think they are going to take either this or a similar case that answers the status use distinction. A lot of people don't necessarily know, but one of the big criteria that the Supreme Court uses when it decides what cases to take up are something called the circuit split. The lower courts are split. The court system is split into three levels, district courts, courts of appeals, and the Supreme Court. And there are courts of appeals that are geographic over different parts of the country. And when different circuit courts resolve a question differently, the Supreme Court is more likely to take it to solve that dispute because they don't want there to be one law that governs New York and one law that governs Maine based on what the Constitution says, right? They want the Constitution to mean the same thing everywhere, or they want federal statutes to mean the same thing everywhere. So there's a circuit split in this case. Different circuits have answered this question differently. And I think the Supreme Court will want to resolve that circuit split, especially because they invited it, right? As you mentioned in Espinoza, Justice Roberts explicitly punts. He says, oh, there's this lingering question about whether we are saying that it is unconstitutional to discriminate against religious people because they do religious things, as opposed to it's unconstitutional to discriminate against religious people because they happen to be religious. And he recognizes that question exists, and he explicitly declines to answer it. So the Supreme Court created the oxygen that led to this circuit split, and the circuit split materialized. And I do think they're going to want to quash it and to answer the question definitively so that there is one understanding of the Constitution across the country. And so if they do take it, which direction do you think they're going? That is a much more difficult question. I think that maybe I'm being optimistic, but parsing what Justice Roberts said in Espinoza, I think that he's going to agree with the justices who think that it is impermissible to discriminate based on a religious use. I think that, I mean, I think that is a much stronger argument, to be totally frank. And it's hard for me to really understand the notion that you can point to a religious person and claim you're only going to pull funding from them because they do religious things and then claim that that is not discriminating against them based on their exercise of religion. And I guess there's some mix of my advocate hat and my predictor hat there. 
but that, that is what I think the outcome will be. Yeah, I, you know, I, I think you're right too. Also, I'm speaking as a you know non-attorney, uh, amateur court watcher myself, just to see Chief Justice Roberts, you know, say that discriminating on the basis of religion is odious to the Constitution, to then split hairs and say, well, of course, I was I was only saying that discriminating on the basis of religious status is odious to the Constitution, but uh, discriminating on the basis of religious use, uh, you know, that might be okay. It seems to be a, a stretch. And there may even be five votes even uh, without Roberts. So there's potentially a major curveball, right? The Supreme Court is hearing a case called Fulton this term in which they're going to decide the question of whether laws that don't discriminate against religion, but nonetheless impose burdens on religion should get strict scrutiny under the First Amendment. So if the Supreme Court in this case called Fulton decides to reinvigorate the First Amendment and to offer more robust protection there, that would largely make this question answered in, the, in, in our favor anyway, meaning that the, the court would have to apply the strictest level of scrutiny to laws like Maine's without even answering this question if they come down the way we want them to come down in Fulton. Our guest today has been Howard Slug, the founder and general counsel of the Jewish Coalition for Religious Liberty. You can find his amicus brief on the supremecourt.gov website, uh, and he, you can find uh, his uh, book chapter in Religious Liberty in and Education, a case study of yeshivas versus New York, which Howard will have to have you back on to discuss that at some point. Sure. Thank you. I look forward to it. Thanks so much. This has been another edition of EdChoice Chats. If you have any ideas for authors or activists or just interesting individuals you'd like us to interview for the Religious Liberty and Education series, please send them to media at edchoice.org and be sure to subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on social media at edchoice and don't forget to sign up for our emails on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll catch you next time.